see him up there. Oh, he's in this car. Awesome. All right. Welcome to the Everyday Warrior Podcast, where uh, our usual host, Mike Sorelli, is uh, out suntanning his taint somewhere. I, I, I don't know where he is. Uh, I don't know where he's at. Is, is that a real thing? Are people sunning their taint to I, increase testosterone and, like, you know... You know why people I do think stuff. It just looks I better. Don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, it looks better for your friends. Well, you know the one thing is in yoga where you there flip you. your legs over the top and you kind of get into that back bend position. I think that's at least what I'm picturing. Do people doing like just laying on your back, kicking your legs over? We used to call I, it. I don't we used want, to call it brown eye to the sky, which I, is what my high school football I, coach used I, to call I, it. I don't want to picture it at all. Let's so let's move on. So uh, <laughs> picture it. Personally. We got BJ picture over it. here. Big John Wellborn. How you doing, buddy? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Your taint's well tanned. <laughs> yes, uh, I do it. It's called sunning. Yeah, the butthole. Our uh, our NFL veteran uh, uh, fitness. We had, a, ex- we had yeah. an interesting conversation. I think veteran. I think veteran's the right way to go. Well, I played ten years. Yeah, and I fought many wars, so technically I'm a veteran. Yeah, in the trenches. I mean, I think, an, I more, think an NFL veteran is like yeah, the right, they're right like imaginary wars in the in you know in costumes. Yeah, yeah, you know, in the trenches, but. uh no, that, that was an interesting thing. I didn't realize that you had to have 20 years to be considered a veteran Navy SEAL. Retired. Or retired no, Navy retired. Retired. Yeah, and so technically, like, I'm not actually retired either, so that needs to be corrected. I, I was in for 19 years, so <laughs> there's a story behind that. <laughs> and we got <laughs> Judd. I tried to get to 20, and they threw me the fuck out. <laughs> we got Judd uh, Kaufman here, our, our, uh, our underachiever, who's going to row across the most dangerous passage in the ocean here in a few months. Uh, we'll see. How you doing, buddy? Yeah, doing great. Yeah, Thanks. training going well. Yeah, John here has got us loaded up with some pretty hardcore training. Uh, my whoop tells me that I'm in the red today. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I got a long way to go. Yeah, yeah the um, as I, uh, I need to be in the red for the whole Probably, trip. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd like to talk to the lady uh, that, that we were on the call Kristen with, Holmes, yeah, 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 and kind of understand like, is there like a load this? So I, I kind of designed obviously training. We're just doing basic strength training, but there's also two to four hours either. Oh, it should be four hours before four hours after we have to do our conditioning work. So I'm trying to vary between the C2, some outside ruck stuff, and then obviously some echo bike, but then like, what's the appropriate load? Cause obviously like we can't just go here. It's gotta be like, it's gotta go. Iron Maiden, caning, whatever. Uh, the beat down. Well, let's uh, let's bring on the man of the hour, uh, Keegan Gill. How are you doing, buddy? Good. How are you guys doing? Good. So uh, I I met Keegan through a mutual healthcare practitioner. He was out here uh, doing some hyperbarics and uh, working with Nuex and uh, one of my uh, doctor friends out here, Eleanor Womack, and. Uh, Got to meet this remarkable young man for uh, for lunch, and uh, honestly, to this day, Keegan, I, I've thought about it every day since we had the conversation. That is the most amazing story I've ever heard in my life. Uh, hate hate to put you on the spot like that, but uh, <laughs> I first of all, I want to clear up something. I I know in our show notes we had you down as as a Navy pilot. Is that correct? I thought you were a Marine pilot and I messed, I messed that up. No, uh, no, you're right. And, uh, and, you know, thank you for the massive compliment coming from yourself uh, and the people you've worked with in your line of work. That's uh, that's a massive compliment. So thank you. Yeah. So, so yeah, just for the, for the listeners, 
for for this guy to say this is the most amazing story he's ever heard because i've already heard some pretty amazing parsley stories a lot so doc parsley was a seal he's been a doctor he's been around the block a few times and i and y'all are going to agree with me you're going to be floored so keegan i i'm, I'm building up I, i'm going to try to keep the pressure off you um <laughs> so uh so I'll, I'll 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 give the the wave top uh and see if you know you, you can correct anything that I'm I'm inaccurate with. But uh, from what I remember on our story, you uh, you were you were pulling about seven G's. You at the speed of sound, you ejected, which is a zero percent survivable event. Your body was destroyed. You hit the water. You drown. Uh, <laughs> were saved. Brought back to life several times. And then there's a whole life story that goes on past that but uh is that is that the yeah, that's, that's the basics of that story right that's that's the nutshell of it uh okay but i'd be happy to get into more detail let's with talk you. about it. just just tell it to me the way you did when we were having that delicious barbecue at the county line <laughs> uh not, not no sponsor there great view uh great queso fries with pulled pork um anyway you got it uh keegan let, let let's let's hear it man so uh tell us tell us about the day i remember setting up there's the 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 feeling of the day around the sharks and the, uh, the weather and uh you know what what you what y'all were doing the danger what was involved and and just like let, let's run us run us through the event you got it. Uh, yeah, so, of, like, uh, of the of, <laughs> of the physical destruction of your body yeah so uh I was uh, a junior officer in VFA 143, the Puke and Dogs, stationed at NAS Oceana out of Virginia Beach. I'd been in the squadron for about eight months. Uh, I, before that, I'd done three and a half years of flight training in the Navy to get to that spot. So uh, I was a winged aviator. But as you quickly find out when you show up at a fighter squadron, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's probably similar in the SEALs. You guys get your trident, we get our wings, and we show up. And we realize we still don't know anything. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> you think you're good, and you're not. You're not even confident. Yeah. You never. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you know, drinking out of the fire hose for the previous eight months in my active squadron, and I was finally starting to feel like maybe I was starting to get my head wrapped around some of this stuff. Uh, getting ready for the flight that day, uh, we were going to go out and do uh, some air-to-air -air refueling, and then with that fuel, with a little extra airspace and time we were going to set up and do air combat maneuvering or basic fighter maneuvering, BFM, which is dog fighting, which is probably what people think of when they think uh, fighter pilot, you know, two jets trying to shoot each other down. So like the top it, gun movie. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I was really excited. It was my favorite thing to do in the jet uh, that and casts and low levels. I mean, we were fortunate. The F-18 Super Hornet is sort of the, the jack of all trades, master of none. So as a pilot, you get to do this wide array of different mission sets. But uh, because of that, you never really feel like you, <laughs> you get terribly for, proficient in any one thing before you're moving on to something else. But uh, getting ready for the day, uh, I'm in the ready room and my buddy Fisty is at the uh, at the SDO desk. So stand in duty, which is all the pilots run through that and ch uh, change uh, that duty out day to day. But he's answering the radio, the phone, coordinating the flight schedule. And as a joke, he put up on the whiteboard behind him all these GPS-tagged sharks that are out on the Atlantic Ocean underneath the airspace we were going to be utilizing that day. And it just so happened there was a 16-foot 
3,500 pound great white shark named Mary Lee. So basically like Jaws mom hanging out uh, in the ocean. On top of that, the water temperature that day at the buoy out there was about 37 degrees Fahrenheit with below freezing air temps. So extremely cold conditions. And, and we joked it would be a terrible day to eject. Um, so I'm getting ready to go out on the flight. I put on a dry suit uh, because we're going to be operating in that area. Get out, do some air-to-air -air refueling. That all goes smooth. And then we set up for some dogfighting, some BFM. My flight lead had 15 plus years of experience, uh, really knew what he was doing. He was a Top Gun weapon school graduate. And I was going to basically step in the ring with Mike Tyson and, and get my ass kicked. But that's, as you know, that's the way the Navy does their training. You just, you jump in over your head constantly and, and you figure out how to swim real quick that way. So we set up, we did several sets of BFM, which is sort of like a round in martial arts. You fight until there's a clear winner or loser, which in this case, uh, was consistently me being, uh, get my ass shot. Uh, <laughs> but we set up. What does that acronym mean? What's VFM? Uh, basic fighter maneuvering uh, is the acronym. I don't know why they call it basic. There's not anything terribly basic about it, but. Yeah, uh, yeah. The same reason basic sciences are basic sciences through your PhD. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's a lot going on when you're doing that. You know, you're, you're flying the aircraft, you're max performing the jet. You're under heavy G load. You can feel all that force. Your body weighs like, depending on your body weight, somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 pounds. Uh, just your head and helmet weigh about 20 pounds when you're under that G. Um, so you're under high physical stress and you're also doing a lot. You're operating aircraft weapon systems, defensive systems. You're flying the jet. You're looking over your head. You're trying to keep sight of the other guy. You're operating multiple radios. So it's very easy to get a helmet fire, as they call it just so much going on that your brain just wants to explode. But, uh, we Are did several, uh, I flew the F 18 echo super Hornet, which is a single seat variant of that super Hornet. Um, okay. if you've seen the new top gun Maverick, it's the, it's the same jet featured in that film, the new one. Um, cool. but, uh, we set up, we did several sets and we got to where we hit Joker fuel which means we were basically out of fuel, but we had just enough fuel for one more set before we hit bingo, meaning we had to head straight back uh, to Oceana. Uh, we set up for the fight a little lower and a little faster than we typically would. We were down at 12,500 feet, uh, about 450 knots. Uh, so I'm still over two nautical miles straight up in the air, which meant the ground was an immediate concern of mine. So we called the three, two, one fights on. I pitched the jet in at, at my at my flight lead. He pitched his jet in at me, and we came to a high speed merge, meaning the paths of our jet cross within about 500 feet of each other, uh, just falling ass. And <laughs> I had just gotten my qualifications with the Jehemix helmet, which is uh, sort of this big space age visor. Wherever you look with your head, your weapon systems can train. Uh, along with your flight display so I could see my altitude and airspeed. But just like any piece of new gear, uh, it takes some time to get used to it before it becomes intuitive. And just that little bit of distraction that that helmet provided, I lost track of my airspeed. And I didn't realize in just the few seconds since we started that fight that I had put on a significant amount of airspeed. Not fully realizing that, I rolled the jet inverted and I continued my pull down towards the ocean. 
uh, in a split S maneuver, meaning I basically dove down straight down at the ocean with the intention of coming back up uh, to take a shot at my, at my adversary. So as I did that, I pulled the jet, uh, the stick all the way back in my lap and I pulled about seven and a half G's. So like I said earlier, you know, just my HUD and helmet at, at uh, one G weighed about, about 20 pounds, let's say for rough math. And I'm at nearly eight G's. So that means I have about 150, 160 pounds just on my head. And you're looking all over and there's a saying that's uh, lose sight, lose the fight. So I'm looking outside, trying to keep my adversary in sight. And as I'm doing that, I get to about bullseye nose low. So pointed straight at the ocean. And all of a sudden I feel the jet ease up. I feel that force that's acting all over my body ease, which is not the feeling you want to have when you're pointed straight <laughs> down at the ocean. And so what had happened, I didn't realize this all at the time, but there's a system on the jet called the G bucket. And there was bombs programmed into the flight control or into the, the software of the jet telling, telling the aircraft that there were bombs on the wings that weren't actually there. And so the jet thinking it was protecting itself from an overstressed condition as I hit transonic, which is right before you break the speed of sound. And so it, it automatically overrode my control input. So imagine going around a sharp corner in a high performance sports car and then having the steering wheel kick back. It's like that damn adaptive speed control on my, uh, on, on, on my auto or what, what's the not autopilot on your cruise control on your car when somebody gets in front of you and your brakes shut down. And yeah, so yeah, yeah you're just losing sometimes all your power all of a sudden. Yeah. Sometimes the automation's nice and there's definitely yeah. some awesome features of the flight control system. But in this case, the computer essentially outsmarted itself and put us in a stuck dive at the ocean. Um, and so we're basically just diving at the ocean as this jet eases from about seven and a half G's down to around four to four and a half G's, which greatly decreased that turn performance of the jet. And in the little bit of time I had to figure this out, I mean, this all just happens in a few seconds. I pulled the throttle to idle. I put out the speed brake in a desperate attempt to try to slow down. But before I know it, the ocean is just rushing up at me and I get this overwhelming ground rush as that ocean just fills up my view. And when it got very clear that there was no other option but to get the hell out of there, if I was gonna live, uh, I pulled the ejection handle. And when I pulled that ejection handle, I was at 695 miles per hour, which is 95% the speed of sound. Uh, I was at 2000 feet above the ocean, two seconds before impacting the ocean in the jet. And a normal ejection is pretty violent. People get their spines compressed. You get flail injuries from your arms whipping about, and that's ejection somewhere in the neighborhood of around 200 knots. I'm over 600 knots, and the effect of that was just devastating my body. It was the equivalent of hitting a freaking explosion with my body. If you stick your arm out a car window going down the highway at about 70 miles per hour, you felt about one one hundredth the force that was acting on my body from that parasitic drag. Uh, so basically, uh, just an explosion and it, at that force, it ripped my helmet off, gave me a TBI. It smashed my face up. Uh, I broke my C1. I broke my left scapula, bilateral humerus fracture. So both my upper arms from flailing. I mean, my arms are just ragdolling. My right humerus tore through my brachial artery in my right arm, causing uh, rapid internal bleeding. 
My left forearm shattered the radius and ulna, uh, also severing the median nerve. My spinal compression and my arms flailing uh, did serious damage to my brachial plexus, which is the nerve that essentially controls a lot of your upper body. My legs were flailing so violently uh, that the steel-toed boots on my feet essentially acted like maces, smashing open my tibia fibulas in both lower legs, shattering ch chunks of my bone are falling out. I ejected so fast that a lot of the flight gear uh, on my, my survival vest ripped off. My dry suit shredded off of me. I mean, this force almost ripped the clothing right off of my body. And by the time the ejection sequence initiated and completed to get me out of the aircraft, it takes about 0.4 seconds. I was at that point, I was at 1500 feet above the ocean, uh, a second and a half from impacting the ocean. That parachute had enough time to deploy and slow me so that I didn't die on impact with the ocean. And within seconds, I smashed into the water and that 37 degree Fahrenheit water, if for anybody who's into cold plunging uh, uh, or for Navy SEALs for what you guys probably do for fun on the weekends, like that's freaking cold water. And it, it felt like needles on my skin as it filled my dry suit. As my head went under, you can feel that sort of brain freeze feeling. And the parachute that had just saved my life sunk underneath the ocean current and got started to drag me down. We have a system on the, on the parachute that connects to our harness, our parachute harness called the sewers. And what the sewers is supposed to do is when it goes into salt water, it sets off a little salt water activated explosive. And that's supposed to disconnect your parachute automatically because upper body injuries are so common in jet ejections. It's very common. You can't reach up and manually disconnect. So that system failed. And so now I'm attached to that parachute, which had just saved my life seconds ago. It now sunk underneath that ocean current and it started to drag me under. And, and, and it's, who, it's important to re, it's important to remind the audience at this point that both of your arms are broken. Your right humerus is going through your brachial or through your uh, brachial artery, your scapula shattered, both your legs are broken, your neck's broken, so you essentially can't move, and you're bleeding like yeah. a sieve. Your dry suit's wide open, and you're bleeding into this 37 degree water with sharks swimming around you, essentially. Yeah, and. Basically, the worst case scenario, a uh, nightmare for any pilot of, of what could happen. And and so I started to just get drug under. And for anybody who's ever been held under by a big wave or done drown proofing, when you need a breath of air and you can't get it, it's a pretty terrible feeling. And I inhaled a lot of water. Uh, fortunately, my life preserver unit around my neck automatically inflated and it provided me enough buoyancy that in between, between the parachute pulling me under and the open ocean smashing into me, uh, I could occasionally get up and get a breath of air, scream for help. Uh, in the meantime, my flight lead saw my parachute open. He dropped a mark for my GPS position and he spotted a fishing vessel about a mile away. He got down over that fishing vessel. He tried to reach him on maritime guard on the radio. They weren't responding. So he got down really low and really fast, and he thumped the bow of their vessel, meaning he freaking flew over the bow of their boat really quick, which got their attention. He got them over to my, my spot where I was at, which was very fortunate because I'm just a little dark head bobbing around in the ocean at this point. My beacon malfunctioned, so all I was was a dark head. My helmet was gone, which has reflective tape on it, 
and I'm getting pulled under. So had that boat gotten out over near my position, I would have drifted off into the ocean and nobody would have found me. And fortunately, my flight lead was able to do that all on essentially fumes of gas before heading back. Uh, oh, my God. ATC coordinated with him on his flight back. They got more aircraft overhead. They got the Coast Guard coming out to my position and two Navy H-60 Seahawk helicopters coming to my position. Uh, the first helicopter that showed up about an hour and a half later, in the meantime, I'd been just getting drowned alive. I, I was in and out of consciousness. I don't know how I didn't drown or bleed to death at this point or get eaten by a freaking Mary Lee who's probably smoked my blood <laughs> well, in the water. The cold water. Uh, and not, they, nothing, uh, nothing he's saying is survivable. So I, <laughs> I, I have no, I have no input on this whatsoever other than wow. So just, yeah. And, uh, and so one of the H-60 Seahawk helicopters shows up. They, uh, their rescue swimmer jumps into the water thinking I'm on the fishing vessel, which I actually wasn't. And fortunately, another another H-60 Seahawk helicopter was on, on scene at that point. And their pilot got eyes on me first. And they got the rescue swimmer into the water. And fortunately, that rescue swimmer got down to my position. He hooked into my titanium D-ring on my harness. And he said that force of the, the parachute drugged both of us underwater. I mean, he's a, he's a rescue swimmer, feet, uh, peak physical condition. And even with him swimming as hard as he could, he could not fight the force of that parachute as it drug us under. Fortunately, he was able to cut loose all the paracord, get me on uh, onto the helicopter with him. And He's on the helicopter, the cord? I'm sorry, what's that? Was he using a knife underwater to cut those parachute cords? Yeah, yeah. He had a specialized knife, a hook knife, so yep. it doesn't have a sharp blade exposed, but then he can... Uh, do it without accidentally. I do the hero. You bought him like cases and yeah. cases of beer. I That's guess not an easy task, right? There. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lots of yeah, tequila you know. for that man. Uh, his, his call sign's Cheech, and he's actually uh, he's actually an army sniper now. He he switched over. Um, oh, nice. But I, but I owe my life to him and everybody involved in the rescue. They got me out of the helicopter. At that point, I was coding multiple times. Uh, I died several times on my way to the hospital, but they were doing everything they could to keep me alive. One of the crew members had started to eat his lunch on the way to the, uh, just before they got the call, it was a big meatball marinara sub. And he kind of like wrapped it up and threw it in the corner of the helicopter when they got this uh, rescue call. And on the flight to the hospital, that meatball sub had broken loose and gotten all over everything. So I was just covered in marinara and meatball. I mean, I was in bad shape, but to make matters worse, it looked like I had freaking gore coming out of my body so when they got me to the hospital they had to explain to the staff there as they're getting me on a gurney like hey he's in bad shape but that's just my lunch you know so they get me into the hospital uh they start doing everything to put humpty dumpty back together again i mean they they took my core body temperature at that point and my core body temperature was at 87 degrees fahrenheit so I should have been and, dead. And you're, you're supposed to die, for the, for reference to the audience, you're supposed to die somewhere around 93, 94 degrees. That's supposed to be unsurvivable. unsurvivable. So yet, yet another miracle. Yeah, I mean, just add it to the list of miracles along the way here. But uh, they took my core body temperature, and that actually, they said, saved me from bleeding to death. Had my dry suit not ripped open, I would have bled to death warm and toasty in my dry suit way before anybody got there. But that cold water constricted my blood flow that was pouring out of my brachial artery and both my open leg fractures. Um, they started treating me for hypothermia. 
I had kidney failure from rhabdomyosis, basically all the all the extremity damage had just overwhelmed my kidneys with all that breakdown of tissue. Uh, I had blood transfusion. Uh, they gave me a bunch more blood. They pumped water out of my lungs. And once I was semi-stable, they, they induced a coma. And I spent the next week undergoing over a dozen trauma surgeries uh, from fasciotomies on all four extremities, uh, which saved all four extremities from, uh, from essentially being from being amputated. Uh, otherwise, I yeah. So, so for the for the audience, I'd like to explain that real quick. Um, your your muscles are wrapped into tissue called fascia that doesn't really stretch well, and so if you bleed too much into the muscle and it's held in by the fascia and the blood pressure keeps building up in there, you essentially kill all of that tissue. It essentially becomes one big blood clot and necrotic. Um, and so, lots of people, you know, pe people can get overuse injuries. Is in that like cast. compartment syndrome? Yeah. So, so people, it's basically like body compartment syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. So he has compartment syndrome in his all four body. limbs. All <laughs> like four, it, his yeah. whole body. Yeah. Everything except his torso. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, people run marathons and, and overuse that and get, you know, too much blood in there and they have to have fasciotomies. But um, so fasci fasciotomy across your entire body, again, like just an insult that would devastate almost everybody, uh, er everyone's physiology. But uh, yeah, keep, keep going, Keegan. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think what really saved me in a large part was, I mean, a lot of things, but as far as the physicality of it all, you know, fortunately I'm a short guy. Uh, at that time I was about five foot seven, 180 pounds. I was, I was into Olympic lifting and CrossFit. So I was short and stocky and strong. And I think that saved, saved me in a lot of ways, um, under undergoing all that trauma. And anyways, I spent a week, they rebuilt my skeleton. I had uh, intermedial rods put in uh, uh, my humerus in both upper arms, both my tibia and my lower legs. So these big titanium rods inserted into the core of the bones. My left forearm was put back like together. Wolverine. Yeah, yeah. If you see my x-ray, <laughs> it looks like freaking Wolverine, although with the budget cuts, they skipped out on the blades, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it, it, it was, it's almost like science fiction if you see my, my x-rays now. But uh, once they got me back together, they started to try to get me out of that induced coma after the week. And I just wasn't coming to. And so I spent the next week in a non-induced coma. A lot of my squadron mates came in to see me. My family's there. And they're all just sort of, the, the morale was really low until somebody kind of piped up and was like, ah, he's a scrappy motherfucker. He'll be fine. And uh, that became my call sign. They shortened it down to Smurf. Uh, and because it's the Navy, you have to have a politically correct cover story, which is because right. I'm a short guy that turned blue from hypothermia. But, uh, but now you know the real story behind it. Um, after another week in that non-induced coma, the lights just finally came back on. I, I woke up just completely dazed and confused. But, uh, but I had, to, hold on, uh, sorry to interrupt you again, but uh, no. I, I believe the medical staff was telling your, your colleagues and your family that, that you were toast, right? That even if you came out of this, you're going to be brain dead. You're never going to walk again. Like all the stupid shit oh, doctors yeah. usually say, right? Yeah. I mean, I, they were just trying to prepare them for the worst, I guess. And, and fortunately they were wrong. And, and as I came to, I, I thought the blanket over me was made out of lead and was tied down because I could not budge, but it was because I was paralyzed. Uh, my whole body, my arms and legs were all vacuum sealed. 
I had these huge fasciotomy wounds. I had nearly 200 stu uh, staples and sutures holding me all together. I looked like freaking Frankenstein. Um, and, and the doctors eventually came in and they said, hey, you know, here's kind of what happened. At this point, I'm still so mentally out of it between all the pain meds and the brain injury. Like I did not understand why I was there or, or why I was in the hospital. I even, I even remember telling some of my buddies in the squadron, hey, will you guys go get a wheelchair and just get me out of here? I'll be fine. And they're like, no, dude, you're going to, you're going to be here for a while. Um, but the docs eventually came in. I don't remember what medical staff it was, if it was a physician or the nurses, but they, they came in and they started saying, Hey, here's the reality. You're never going to walk again. You're never going to use your arms again. Your flying career is over. And, you know, we're not trying to be mean. We're just trying to lay it out there. And in the back of my mind, I was just sort of like, I'm going to prove you all wrong. And every day it just became my mission to just do anything I could. And I poured all of my energy and focus into just trying to wiggle like my hips a little bit. After a couple of weeks, one of the nurses came into my room and I was able to scoot to the bottom of my bed. And she came in and I was sitting up at the bottom of the bed and kind of, she was taken back the fact that I was sitting up. Uh, they then transferred me down to Richmond or up to Richmond, Virginia, to the poly trauma center there at the VA hospital. And I spent the next three months undergoing every kind of therapy known to man from vision therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, kinesiotherapy, aqua therapy, recreational therapy, you name it. Like they were throwing everything at me, uh, as including a massive list of pharmaceutical drugs. I was on a concoction of oxycodone, oxycontin, tramadol, trazodone, amitriptyline, and massive doses of gabapentin. And Jesus Christ. little by little there, I, I relearned how to start using my legs. I relearned how to start using my arms. And after three months, I could get around on a walker well enough that they, they let me head back to Virginia Beach, where I continued outpatient therapy, um, underwent more surgeries, and it didn't look good still. I mean, I, I had, I had very little function, but, but I had some friends. Start uh, to how many, how many surgeries at this point are you, are you estimated? We're like, are we like around 20 surgeries at this point? I think, I think 16 procedures at that point. Uh, I've had a few more since, but I think around 16 different surgical procedures and, uh, and I was also addicted to massive amounts of all these medications they were giving me for pain. And, yeah. and actually, well, obviously you had an oxycodone deficiency, your oxycodone deficiency <laughs> probably caused by your oxycodone gland felling. Yeah. Of the injection. Yeah. yeah. yeah here, have some of this, this will help complicate things for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so actually the thing that be a tumor. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Looked like it. The I thing that actually helped the, um, the thing that actually helped the pain, I had severe nerve pain, but they actually came in, this uh, doc, that didn't even look like a doc, just kind of like a long-haired hippie guy came in and he had a bag of glucose and a little syringe and it was called prolotherapy. And he injected these little bumps of essentially sugar water subcutaneously all around the areas where I had nerve pain. And within 10 minutes, and I don't know, maybe 10 bucks of supplies, the severe nerve pain reduced by at least 90% and permanently never came back, uh, at least to that level of discomfort. Um, and it didn't take any drugs. It was just freaking sugar water. But um, uh, little I've by little. I've had extensive prolotherapy. 
And uh, yeah, the prolo works great. I mean, I had um, a tear in, in a ligament and a tear in a, in a tendon, and they injected it with the prolo, and it healed up just fine. So no, I mean, prolotherapy is pretty amazing stuff, and it's just sugar water causes inflammation. Yeah. yeah. It's been around yeah. been around forever. For, forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that that wasn't the first step, I, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, medicine's lost. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna bring that out later. How bad is medicine treated you? Well, well, we, they stuff. actually do a better version with B vitamins. So they do a prolo with B vitamins that actually works dramatically better than just the sugar water. So yeah. Um, All right, it, it, head, it, head us out, yeah. man. Keep keep going. Wait, wait, yeah. Keegan, sorry, what year was this? What year was this? This was uh, the ejection was January fifteenth, two thousand fourteen. So it's been about nine years at this point. A little over nine years. Um, so I'm in bad shape. Uh, I ended up having to go through an extensive FENAV, which is a field naval aviator evaluation board where they, they looked at all the information from the aircraft, the crash, what I had done. I mean, they dove into my life. Uh, they wanted to know everything down to my diet before the ejection, everything. And I spent several months going through that process, which all culminated with me uh, coming in through the FENAB, I, I believe I was still using a cane to get around at this point, but I'm dressed in my summer white uniform and I had to go stand tall in front of an admiral after months of investigation. And I come into the boardroom and it's sort of a table like you guys are sitting at there, this long wooden table and flanked on both sides of it are about a dozen other naval aviators. And they had done some preliminary questioning of me. Uh, but at this point, we're all standing there waiting for the admiral. As he walks in, we rise to attention. He tells us all to sit down. I sit down at the opposite side of this long wooden table from the admiral. And the only question he asked me is he looks across the table and he goes, Lieutenant Gill, are you fearless? And I took a moment to just think about what I was going to say. And I said, I, I don't remember everything from the ejection, sir but I'm certain what little bit of padding there is on an ejection seat was puckered up inside me real tight. And <laughs> he didn't smile, he didn't laugh, he didn't say a word, he just stood up and walked out of the room. And so I'm thinking, oh man, maybe that didn't go so well. But uh, shortly thereafter, one of the other senior ranking officers called me into his room, had me sit down and he handed me a lifesaver, a little mint. And he said, congratulations, you're going to head back and fly again. Uh, and while, you know, I was partially responsible for what had happened by uh, making the split second decision to maneuver the jet nose low at that airspeed, uh, there was a lot more to it. Uh, and in particular, that flight control system overriding my inputs has killed or caused near mishaps of several pilots much more senior and more experienced than I uh, prior to my mishap. And since then, I personally know one, at least one guy who has had, uh, who no longer is with us because of that same system overriding his inputs at the worst possible time. So, um, I was fortunate to get the, per, uh, the, the chance to go back and fly, but that gave me enough motivation to keep pushing ahead with my therapy. And while the clinical therapy was helpful at a certain level, what really helped me was I had friends working with me outside of the clinic, um, I had friends taking me out surfing. I could barely put on a wetsuit because my arms were still so weak. But we went out in outer banks and we were paddling out into like 10 to 12 foot surf, just getting smashed. I was just getting smashed. But just popping back up to the surface after getting held down, it was like overcoming those fears. Uh, my buddy Spicoli took me out downhill mountain biking. Jeff? 
<laughs> Not yet. Paul Stein is after after him. Uh, Mr. Hand. <laughs> and uh, Aaron Thurber. Uh, he's actually deployed right now. Uh, good dude. But they, they got me out. You know, my buddies got me back out, hanging out at Chick's Oyster Bar in Virginia Beach. They got me out just hanging out and, and rebuilding my confidence and rebuilding my body and my soul at a certain level. Um, I, I managed to overcome that prescription drug addiction on my own against the advice of the, the pain management team. I just started to wean myself off everything. I, I weaned myself off just one at a time. First, the amitriptyline, then the tramadol, then the trazodone, then the oxy, which those were uncomfortable and, and caused a lot of anguish for a while. But the one that was the most painful was the one that wasn't even supposed to be uh, habit forming. It was gabapentin or neurotin, which yeah. they told me when I started taking it, this is the safer alternative to oxycodone. So we're going to give mm -hmm. you a bunch of it. And I think I was on like 2,400 milligrams of that stuff a day, took in, mm -hmm. taking these big horse pills like four times a day. That stuff took me months to wean myself off of. Are you suggesting that the pharmaceutical companies provide uh, misinformation? No. Uh, I was going to say two <laughs> things. One, um, yeah. don't ever have the seafood chowder at Chicks. Uh, the most <laughs> sick I've ever been. I've never thrown up that much. I got a bad oyster at Chicks, yeah, so I, I, I can't walk into that place. Not high quality. Food, no. Right. And then the other one is uh, our dog uh, got lymphoma, and they gave him gabapentin. And like we give him one a day, and if we don't give it right on time, he starts to whine. And I'm always like, what is in that gabapentin? As soon as you said it, I'm like, so we give our dog. Well, oh, and yeah. everybody knows how hard it is to get off benzodiazepines, things like Valium, Xanax, and then sleeping pills, Ambien, Lunesta, and those, those are all working on the GABA system. Um, that's what nearly killed Jordan Peterson getting off of Valium. Yeah. He spent a year in recovery. So like yeah. messing around with GABA receptors is a really bad idea. And that's how all sleep drugs work, but that's a soapbox. Now I, I'm, I'm pushing this along because as you told me, right about now you said this is where the disney story ends and uh and yeah. now the really emotional hard amazing unbelievable stuff uh it, it yeah, is coming so, and, and we we got to get to this so so uh yeah yeah so to, you got back into the jets so, flying man, and 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 fill us in after that yeah i mean at this point it took two years but i was able to uh, max out the navy's physical fitness i was performing well again. I seemed I was all back. I had to undergo all sorts of assessment and get all sorts of waivers, but I was back flying super Hornets again. And I got stationed with VFA 136 Nighthawks out in Lemoore, California. And it seemed like, you know, a, a miracle had happened. So many miracles. And I was back on top of the world. I went on a flight in Tyndall Air Force Base. We were doing a, a live fire weapons exercise. I got to fire uh, an AIM-9 Mike heat-seeking missile at, at a drone. And then I got to go off and do some dissimilar air combat training, which is BFM against an F-22 Raptor uh, from an Air Force squadron that was there off. Uh, these guys are out of uh, Hawaii, off Oahu flying Raptors, which has probably got to be the best flying gig ever uh, conceived. But anyways, I came back from that flight and in the debrief, I was watching my tapes and I realized I had these huge gaps in my memory from the missile shoot, which was concerning. I remember fighting the Raptor very vividly it was one of the coolest things I ever did, seeing that thing with its directional thrust. But I went back home that night. I just thought maybe I just needed to sleep it, or not back home, but back to the hotel room we we're staying at. And I couldn't sleep. Uh, I went in. I was just on duty the next day, so I wasn't flying, just answering radios and phones and coordinating the flight schedule. And as the day progressed, I just got feeling worse and worse. 
And that night I got back to my hotel room. My anxiety was spiked. My insomnia was there. Like I was trying to set my phone uh, for the alarm for the next morning because I had to get up and fly. And I couldn't do the mental math to figure out what time I needed to get up in the morning or how to set my alarm. There had been a, a number of issues with decompression sickness in the Super Hornet. We had a problematic uh, pressurization system in both the Hornets and the Super Hornets that caused rapid decompression. And for divers out there, when you get decompression sickness, you can get it in your joints, which is type 1 DCS, which are little bubbles that form and cause pain. And there's type 2 DCS, which is when those little bubbles can form in your brain, which can do everything from causing symptoms like a stroke or aneurysm to even killing you. So we suspected maybe I got one of these bubbles in my brain. They rushed me to Mayport Dive Base where I underwent a night of hyperbaric therapy. Uh, I started to feel a little better, but when I got back to Lemoore, they said, hey, you got to go see the flight doc, which after overcoming all of that and all the waivers, the last thing I wanted to have to do was go to medical because that typically doesn't end well in those kind of fields. Uh, and anyways, I went in reluctantly. I didn't want to hurt or kill anybody or, or injure myself. Um, and I knew something was wrong. Uh, I, I still couldn't sleep. I didn't have any concentration, focus. My memory was shot. And I went in and before long, I had a delayed onset PTSD diagnosis. And of course, one of the first options they went with was more drugs. And the last thing I wanted to do was take more pharmaceutical drugs after my experience of withdrawals, but they painted that as the only picture, uh, the only solution to maybe have a chance to get back to flying. Retrospectively, what year was this? this was um, 2017. Okay. Um, and retrospectively, I had classical symptoms of an unresolved TBI or brain injury, um, but unfortunately, everything got bit off on this. Uh, PTSD diagnosis, and they started throwing a bunch of drugs at it. And it worked initially to mask the symptoms that uh, the drug they gave me was called quetiapine or Seroquel, which at low doses is used as a sleep aid. Uh, it's typically used it's an as an antipsychotic, an yeah. okay. so duty psychotropic medication. And yeah. as time went on, I started to become paranoid and extremely hypervigilant, started to feel like I was in the Truman show, like everybody was an actor everything was fake and everybody was watching me as it degraded. I, I started to become full up psychotic and I went into psychoses. Uh, I started to think the government was hunting me. Um, I, I started to hide from the windows in my house. Uh, it was extremely, I was having panic attacks, just trying to go out to go to the grocery store. Uh, I stopped eating and drinking because I thought I was being poisoned by the government, which in fact I was, but it was in the pharmaceutical drug. <laughs> I just got worse and worse. My wife had just had our newborn little baby boy and she's taking care of our newborn and she's trying to take care of me who's just out of my mind. And I remember one night I was just so depressed and dark and twisted from everything that was going on. I felt like I had let down my squadron, my everybody who had faith in me. And I, I kept a Glock 19 in my end table by my bed. And I started to think, what is, what's the barrel going to feel like on my teeth? What's the gun oil going to taste like in my mouth? And the only thing that kept me from going through with it is I looked over and I saw my wife and my little baby boy sleeping next to me and I didn't want to wake him up. So I closed the end table and, and I tried to go back to sleep, but I spent a long time in bad places. Sometimes the psychoses were really exciting. I thought my wife was Carrie Matheson 
from the show Homeland. She kind of looks like her. So I thought she was this secret agent that had been sent to save me. Um, but before long, I had to go through a medical board to be processed out of the military, which is essentially the bureaucratic equivalent of the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom. I mean, the whole process is riddled with booby traps to derail veterans trying to get help through that to get a medical retirement. Uh, through appeals and a lot of fighting, even with a very clear-cut case, I was eventually medically retired and moved back to northern Michigan with my family. And they kept now, upping did, the- did, Didn't they, sorry, did, sorry to interrupt, didn't you tell me that they tried to accuse you of malingering and that you wanted, you were doing this so you could get out and fly commercial? Yeah. Yeah. At, at the board, they, they accused me that I was- there was nothing evidence that could have caused this. <laughs> Um, apparently they didn't even crack open my medical record to see anything that was going on. Um, but, uh, I was fortunate to eventually get medically retired. I moved back to Northern Michigan with my family and they continued increasing the dose of Seroquel. And within a few days of them increasing the dose from 300 milligrams a night up to 450 milligrams, which is a, a heroic dose of that medication. Um, my wife came in, she had found me, I was completely naked. For some reason, I had shaved off my hair in chunks. I'd shaved off my eyebrows. And, and the only thing I had on was a black plastic garbage bag that I was wearing like a cape because I thought I was a superhero that was going to go out into the northern Michigan weather dressed like that and fight crime. My wife rushed me to the ER, and there I underwent an intense psychosis. Um, and then I ended up getting transferred to the Battle Creek VA inpatient psych facility. So I was in a, a psych hospital and completely out of my mind. And the only answer there was just more drugs. And everything there was to force you onto drugs, whether you wanted them or not. I had been voluntarily admitted, but it helped me against my will. And, uh, and what they were doing to people in there, if you take somebody going through survival training in the military to get an exposure to what it would be like to be a prisoner of war, they do this at SEER school. The things they can do to people is they can find them, they sleep deprive them, um, they, they don't give them nutrition, they don't let them go outside. And a lot of the same things that you would do to an enemy combatant to break them, to make them do whatever you want, are the same things that they do to American veterans in the VA inpatient psych facilities. It's a very difficult place to sleep to begin with. There's people yelling and moaning and grumbling and going in and out of psychoses. Um, and then every 15 minutes, they come into your room and they shine a flashlight in your face to make sure you're safe. So you become extremely sleep deprived, requiring more drugs to sleep. Uh, the food is just absolutely abysmal. You're getting this nutrient void prison food. There's not really a fresh fruit or vegetable in sight. If you do get a salad, it's just white iceberg lettuce with seed oil crap dressing all over it. Um, so you're just getting awful nutrition. You don't get to go outside hardly at all. Maybe once a week, you get to go out into a concrete fenced in yard. Uh, you can't exercise the water that comes out that you get to drink tastes like it comes from a bottom of an old hot tub, uh, just full of junk. And, and so a lot of people just end up drinking this artificially sweetened garbage. They, they pass out nutter butters and freaking Oreos like crazy but there's just junk that they're feeding you. And, and I guess you don't go hungry, but you are nutrient deprived uh, at a very deep level. Yeah, and you're so still, the only you're still starving. You're just eating plenty. 
And, and, and if um, you walk into the place, you might not think it's that bad. You know, it's clean. It's got pictures on the wall. Uh, but underneath the surface, it, it's pretty abysmal, the treatment that they're getting. I spent months. You, uh, oh, go ahead. Didn't you tell me that they brought some lawyers in at this stage? Are you about to oh, get to yeah. that? So this, I actually I mean, planned this, this fills planned me with homicidal it. rage. But yeah, yeah I, I started to become more lucid in talking to other veterans in there. And they're they're guys that have been in and out of prison uh, in their struggles. And they all agreed they'd rather be in federal prison than in this inpatient psych facility run by the VA because the treatment there was better. The food was better. They got to go outside regularly. Um, and so I started to plan an escape. I used my training from SEER school. I started making weapons out of balled up socks. Uh, I started uh, gathering food and warm clothes. And my plan was I was going to pull the fire alarm. And when they took us outside, uh, me and the other veterans that wanted to could make a run for it. And I went to execute my plan. And apparently somebody had already tried this trick. And they ended up coming and forcibly injecting me with a medication called Heldol, which is a heavy duty antipsychotic that they inject into you which caused me to feel like my skin had insects trying to eat their way out from underneath. I just wanted to rip my skin off and run and scream at the top of my lungs. If you've ever seen a movie or TV show about psych facilities and you see somebody just freaking out, like they're undergoing an exorcism and trying to tear their skin off, that's probably because they just got injected with hell doll. Um, But after that, they just started drugging me and I was drooling on myself literally when they took me into a room to sign a bunch of paperwork. I had no idea what I was signing. The soulless warrior that was in the room that was supposedly supposed to be representing me ended up, uh, that paperwork stripped me of my constitutional right to bear arms and it labeled me as permanently mentally defective. So now if I get pulled over by the police, I come up in the law enforcement information network as if I had committed a felony. So I was an American veteran that went in to try to get help through the VA system And I ended up getting stripped of my constitutional right to bear arms. I ended up getting drugged against my will and confined against my will. And uh, witnessing. You're you're on the no fly list too, aren't you? Do you tell me you're on the no fly list? I'm not on the no fly list, but uh, it's going to be a serious uphill battle for me to overcome that um, mental defective label that they put on me. So, you know, things seem pretty hopeless. Um, eventually my family got me out of there and I started to seek alternative methods of healing. I started, uh, really improving my diet as much as possible, getting regular exercise, just being outside helped. And what really turned the tide for me was I read the book, how to change your mind by Michael Pollan. And I discovered psychedelic healing and I underwent, uh, a psilocybin mushroom retreat, and that started to change the tide. And to use Michael Pollan's uh, analogy, it was like a fresh snowfall over these ruts of negative emotions uh, that I had been through. Uh, and it sort of filled in these gaps. So I had this fresh powder that I could take new lines down the hill on my skis in my life. And little by little, I started to get better. Eventually, I found Heroic Hearts Project, Warrior Angel Foundation, and they started to do a lot of what you do, doc, which, uh, is they actually did a real blood test. They looked at my physiology and they started to see all these signs of TBI and all the damage and havoc that does to your hormone imbalances. And anybody with imbalanced hormones is going to have a lot of issues, including sleep problems, cognitive dysfunction, mood and dysfunction. And once those things actually finally started to get addressed, 
uh, along with a, a psychedelic retreat down to Peru through Heroic Hearts Project. This combination of things really started to turn the tide for me. Uh, and I discovered this whole world of alternative modalities that are incredibly effective, yet they're being intentionally suppressed and oftentimes made illegal by the powers of the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. So, uh, so when I saw you were out here doing hyperbarics, I know uh, you're working with Dr. Womack for some peptides as well. You, as you said, you're on hormonal modulation. Um, and I can, I can attest to, you know, if, if I had met you and not told it and you'd not told me the story, I would never had any idea anything was ever wrong with you. I mean, you, you, you present yourself as completely healthy. You move naturally. You, you obviously speak naturally, normal affect, all this stuff. So you seem, you know, to somebody who doesn't know you prior, you seem a hundred percent where, like, where would you, where would you rate yourself as far as, you know, how, how close to the pre-tragedy, uh, yeah. Keegan, uh, are you? So in the past about a year and a half, two years now, I've gone from drooling on myself, barely able to do the dishes, miserable, depressed, just grumpy to be around on the verge of divorce to now. Um, I would say I'm about 85%. I certainly have some physical limitations from the nerve damage, uh, some weakness. And mentally, I still have you know, issues. It's not exactly a linear path to healing. I have good days and, and days that are not as good. But um, at this point, I, I'm, I completed the Margie Gessick, which is uh, an ultra, ultra distance mountain bike race this past fall. Um, I, I'm doing, uh, I'm writing a book. I've been motivational speaking and podcasting. And, and for somebody about a year and a half ago that could barely put a sentence together or barely read a paragraph, the changes that I have seen in this short period of time have been miraculous. And, and, and I hope more people can gain access to the modalities that I have been fortunate to come across and, and a lot through generosity uh, of folks like uh, Clay and Eleanor Womack uh, that put me in touch with you, uh, Heroic Hearts Project, Warrior Angel Foundation, uh, Defenders of Freedom, the Resiliency Brain Clinic, 62 Romeo, um, I, I've just had, I've been so fortunate. Um, no Fallen Heroes actually just took me this spring down to Costa Rica for Iboga uh, treatment. Uh, I've just been, I've had incredible life-changing experiences for, for somebody who shouldn't be here at all. And if I, in best case, I should be paralyzed still, but I'm starting to be able to function at a higher level, both physically and mentally. Um, through these alternative modalities and lifestyle changes. So it, it, if I have this right, so we're talking a year and a half, so to late, mid 2021 or maybe early 2022. So from uh, 2018 till then, um, pretty much a battle for your life. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, from that point that I was going into the psychoses on the psych meds they were giving me, uh, for years, I was just, I was a mess. I mean, um, it did serious damage to, to my family seeing me like that. And, and, and we're still healing a lot of that and the aftermath of that, but, um, it's so good to have hope again <laughs> and, and see. Do you, do you have, do you have fears that, do you have fears that this is going to come back, that maybe this is a temporary and 
and you know, and, I, and really, snap I really, I really, uh, <laughs> at first when I started to get better, my wife was incredibly fearful that I was just being manic and, and that I was going to go back into that oh, cycle yeah. again. Um, yeah. but it has been long enough at this point that I, I think that this has been a serious permanent change and, and, you know, time will tell, but I really believe it was those psych meds that were pushing me over the edge. Um, I, I believe that too. I believe that too. You know, and I, so, I've so many other veterans, a lot of guys in the, the SF community uh, that you've worked with like yourself. Uh, and, and this is not an uncommon theme. Uh, I heard yeah. a something like 90% of people that get put on these psychotropic medications have severe adverse reactions, but it just gets blurring. And unfortunately, no matter how good the people at the VA are, how well-intended the physicians and the staff are, at the very top of that VA system, I've talked to an admiral, a 30-plus year admiral who is a flight surgeon who's been in the board meetings for policy decisions. And at the end of the day, the pharmaceutical industry sets the policies at the VA. Um, right. And, we can, well, and, get the, and they organize the training, the right? Yeah. It's and, the pharmaceutical companies that well, are educating the doctors at the VA right. on what to do. Well, it's no, the pharmaceutical industry in a circular manner we could discuss on another podcast. They actually, they actually dictate the training of medical doctors in America. So like what you learn in medical school all the way through internship residencies and further on algorithm. We should that, do a that's podcast all, on that's that. That's all dictated by the by. Well, by the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, just to give you how messed Definitely. up things are, when uh, when we were doing all that work at Fort Bragg, one of the issues we were running into was these kids had uh, terrible fatty liver and like uh, renal failure and yeah. all this because they're consuming like, you know, pre-workout and drinking 27 monsters a day. They could not get uh, the GNCs and the supplement company, uh, supplement sent places kicked off a base. And when the four star tried to, you got a call from somebody above him that was like, you can't do this. You have to, you have to leave it there. They've paid. And so he's like, it's killing these kids and we're basically having to do them. They're like, yeah, no, it's not a problem. So, so, so Keegan, I, I, I think this might be an obvious answer based on what you said so far, but, and I know this, this is a huge, huge what if, and there's a million things you could say, but just to the best of your ability, if knowing what you know now, if you knew someone else was going to go through this, like, what do, you, what do you think the military could do to improve this process? Like, is, is there any kind, is there like any sort of like big mover that you could say, well, if, you know, if they just did this or that, that would catch 60 or 70% of this or something? Oh, yeah. I mean, for one, I, I think something that could be incredibly powerful uh, for everybody in these, in these sort of communities, be it SF or the strike fighter community, if, if guys could come back from a deployment and spend a couple weeks or even just a week where they get one of these reboots where they actually like you did in the seal community where you actually get a legitimate blood test and you get those things assessed and you get sort of these tune-ups and you do a right. lot of preventative measures and, and you know, the stress and, and the hardship of those jobs isn't going to change, but we could do a lot to be proactive vice wait until things snowball out of control. Um, and, then when like they we do, do to our equipment, we can actually do a little right. PMS, a little, a little pre uh, uh, preventative maintenance scheduling on an, oh, on yeah. our people. That's like we do equipment. And, and uh, I was fortunate to go to a resiliency brain clinic in Dallas and then also uh, ATX hyperbarics there in Austin and do these, yeah. these therapies. And you could have 
these sort of things on every middle military base and the return on investment for keeping the people with experience coming in. I mean, I don't know how many millions of dollars went into my training or how much it costs to train SF guys. And it's gotta be huge. And if you just did a little bit to take care of them, you would extend their careers, you would improve their performance and it would be all around a win for everybody except for the pharmaceutical industry. Playing on guys. That, that's uh, a big exception, man. That's a big exception. There's I, lots, of, lots of trillions floating around on that. I know. Um, just two quick data points to get a to get a seal through the pipeline. Just checked into his team. Not even the specialized training you get when you're a you know a new guy in your platoon. That's 1.5 million. Wow. Just to get a guy to show up at a seal team qualified. And in 2012. A friend of mine was working for an accounting firm in D.C., and they audited the VA. And at the end of this year and a half long audit, they sat down with the VA administrators and they said, look, your system is so inefficient that if you guys offered every single transitioning veteran, either A, continued health care for life through the VA or B, a million dollar check right now, if they all took the million dollar check, we would save money as taxpayers. The VA would save money. And they oh, said no. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, a lot of a lot of them would piss that money away. So, yeah, so yeah, which what, would just help the economy right. and the local drug dealers and hookers. Yeah, but and then they still need matter. Yeah, yeah, but then you know what? Uh, then it's like when you spend your last dollar, they're like, and now it's over for you. It's time to lay At least you could pay cash for a tattoo instead of finance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Keegan, uh, what what are you what are you working on now? As far as like, uh, you know, are are there any big are there any things in the horizon that you would like to do that, that you don't have access to or don't know the, the don't, I don't, I don't know, may, maybe problems you have that you don't have solutions to or, or, uh, you know, you know, any, anything that you're working on that you've, that, that, uh, that we could help you with or the audience could help you with it, that, that uh, anybody could help provide support to organizations that, that, you think you're making a big difference for you and other people is, is there anything out there like that that you're really moving towards or that you're passionate about yeah i mean i mean i think something that could be huge is to start pushing for a preventative medicine program for the strike fighter community i i think that that community could use it extremely bad the way that you've kind of stepped into that role for the SEAL community, but uh, anybody out there who could potentially be interested in, in getting something like that started, uh, I, would, I would love to help lead that charge to help my brothers and sisters in that world um, in the job and the hardships they go through, the physical stress and the just constant chronic stress they're dealing with. I think that could be incredibly powerful and, and increase the power of our, our, our U.S. military and help help them in so many ways. Um, some other things, if people want to support this sort of stuff, um, I've already mentioned a number of these organizations uh, from Warrior Angel Foundation, Vet Solutions, uh, No Fallen Heroes, uh, Defenders of Freedom, 62 Romeo. Um, there's just there's a number of nonprofit organizations out there that are already doing a lot of these things to help and so supporting those organizations can definitely help uh, veterans on the back end of their military service kind of come out of a dark place because there are a lot of veterans trapped um, 
in a really bad spot and they're not getting good help. They're getting, they're going for help and they're getting pushed into a point where you see these massive suicide rates. So, yep. uh, you know, I, I kind of, I feel this calling to help raise awareness about these things and, and speak about how bad it is. Uh, I'm writing a book right now. Um, you know, so maybe you guys will see that on the shelves here before long, once it gets through the editing process, but, uh, just raising yeah, any, any idea when that book will be out. Um, you know, I don't want to put a date on it cause I, I don't want to rush it. Um, ballpark. I mean, we talking was, three months, six months, a year, the next year or so. Um, okay. like anything, it, it always takes a lot longer than you think. <laughs> sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I want I want to really polish it and have it good to go. And, and, uh, I'm also going to have a lot of guides in there and resources and, and I can send you guys some links and stuff. If you want to put them with this podcast. Uh, For sure. Yeah. Any, anything you want to put, uh, we'll, we'll share. Um, so I, so you, you shouldn't have survived the ejection. Uh, you shouldn't have survived the injuries from the ejection. You shouldn't have survived the parachute pulling you under. You shouldn't have avoided the shark. You shouldn't have lived through the helicopter ride. You should have made it through all your surgeries and your coma shouldn't have uh, gotten you know uh, gotten out of your psychoses doc, I, um, I don't I don't I don't know how many miracles I can doc, count in this doc I'm, I'm um, you know and, and I'm sure Keegan doesn't understand it either but like what's the what's the standard of care of just stacking more and more medications on top like he's already on all these like painkillers then they just start stacking like these psychotropics and like these like this and this like like is it is the kind of the standard of the care that there's like some magical combination of all of these drugs that'll make you normal no so the 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 standard is everybody specializes now um and so in their specialty there's a handful of procedures and a handful of medications that work and you know the guy working the neurologist working on his pain isn't the same guy orthopedics working with his bones isn't the same person as the psychiatrist working with his ptsd isn't it so everybody's got their mix and then the internist is the unfortunate soul who has to figure out what out of these 17 drugs is causing the current side effect and then they're going to try to put some other drug in there to block the side effect of that and then and and what it what it truly is 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 hubris it's it's the unwillingness to accept that you don't know what the hell is going on and it's the unwillingness to say you know what this guy isn't getting better we've done something wrong let's rethink everything we've done from day one like if we can pull him off of everything or like let's get him down to two drugs and then see what we absolutely need to do um and then there's a lot of medical legal challenges i mean it, you know he he's alluded several times to what i did to the seal teams but that wasn't popular you know that destroyed my career i, I was investigated and you know, like i was in a lot of trouble for a lot of time just trying to do quasi alternative well, things like vitamin like iv vitamins that was like that was voodoo medicine and so practicing outside of the standard of care and medicine you lose your license and all it takes is like i could have i could have my, my patients could have orders of magnitude better outcomes than my colleagues and all of my patients could love me but some physician somewhere could say Doc Parsley isn't practicing standard of care. And then they could take me to court and they could put a couple of Harvard white haired guys with wide rim glasses and their white coats on. And they'd say, did, did Doc Parsley follow the standard of care? And they'd say, no, Doc Parsley loses his license. Doc Parsley gets sued for a bunch of money. Doc Parsley can possibly go to jail and like have criminal charges put against him. So, 
Um, nobody wants to step on each other's toes. Nobody wants to take off the medication that the other guy put on. Um, and once you know, once somebody's been taking something for several months, nobody wants to say, well, let's pull them off of that and try over. There's a, well, let's add more of this. Let's add this to cover the side effects of that. And, and it becomes an impossible task. It's not manageable. They just try to pretend like it is, uh, you know, maybe with AI they can get closer with this, but, but obviously this, like, you know, my, my poorly presented joke earlier, like none of this is a pharmaceutical deficiency, you know, uh, the the ideal thing is to get everybody off of medications, but whatever, what, what the medical community thinks to do is how can we add more medications to cover up this or or add better medications or something like that, instead of like, what can we do to improve the root cause of this? Um, So, my where I was going with my question, all these miracles, uh, I've lost count. Let, let's call it a dozen. Um, were you a spiritual man before? Has this made you spiritual? Is, is there a big component of that to you? This is that important to you? And, and uh, you know, don't you, you don't have to say anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, but just, oh, it just falls out to me that you got to feel blessed over this. <laughs> I mean, you just got to feel like somebody's looking out for you. I mean, before, before all of this, I was sort of like a dog looking at the moon. You know, I, I, I suspected there was something bigger going on that we couldn't see, but I didn't understand it. But through everything that has happened through, through the trauma, through the survival, the miracle after miracle, and, and then sort of this, a spiritual awakening that these psychedelics help really provide. I have now, just had my eyes opened, you know, this interconnectedness, whatever you want to call that God, divinity, the oneness, you know, there's, there's so many different takes on what that is. And, and, and I'm not here to judge whatever people want to call that or what their religious beliefs or spiritual thoughts are, but there is no doubt there is something else going on around us. Uh, and, and we only have five senses and we, we kind of tend to disregard anything we can't perceive with those five senses. Um, yeah. But there's so much going on around us we cannot perceive. But I have no doubt there is some some ma- magical goodness all around us. Um, I'm with you, man. 100%. Some love to connect us all. And, and it's powerful to, to see it and, and feel feel and, and and even everything I've been through and all the hardship, it's it's just been a tool and a teacher to bring me to be who I am now. Uh, and I feel I really have a purpose in life to to help serve others and, and share my message and, and, and maybe move this forward and, and move that massive needle in a different direction, if, even if it's just a smidge. Um, yeah. Is, is flying ever a possibility for you again? Or is that is that opportunity gone because of the it's, medical uh, legal stuff? It'd be a stretch. Um, I'd have to go through a long process to get the, uh, a lot of these things overturned and, and then it would be up to the FAA to eventually, I don't know how long the waiver period is after being on psychotropic meds, but it's probably five plus years that I could potentially. Yeah. I, and honestly, I don't know that that's really where my heart's at anymore. That was yeah, I, yeah, I understand. Life. I understand. Um, but I've been really enjoying the speaking, um, sort of doing uh, the speaking events, the podcasting, the writing, and, uh, how, just, how, how can people, how can people find you if they want to hire you to speak? Uh, the, the easiest spot to find me on is, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, under my name, Kagan Gill, which is K E G A N 
The last name's Gill, G-I-L-L. And you can also find me on Instagram at Kagan Smurf Gill. Uh -huh. All one word. So please. Uh, Scrappy please motherfucker, Gill. I was waiting for like at Thanks Pharma. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Hey, is, Here's to is, you, Big Pharma. Is your Instagram uh, sponsored by Pharma? <laughs> is it sponsored by Pfizer? Uh, not. Do, you, uh, so, do you remember years ago there was a movie called Orderlies with the Fat Boys? It's one of my favorite movies no. from when we were little kids, right? The no. Fat Boys were like a rap group of these like fat dudes, and uh, they had they were in a movie called Orderlies, and in it they were like dipshits that get this job to like go like work with this old guy, and they mess up and throw away all of his medication, and then all of a sudden he wakes up and he's like, I feel better, and he like went and lived his life and found out that like all the medication <laughs> was making him sick and killing yeah. him. And then he has like, and then he like takes a guy and it's like this, they have a good adventure. But like, it feels like this, like everybody I know, cause my buddy Kyle Turley, same thing. They gave him all these drugs. He wakes up naked in his closet with a gun and he's trying to figure out like, like, do I have to kill myself or do I have to tell my family I'm dead first? Like he's having this conversation in his head and then he's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. And like, he just went cold turkey off everything and was like, uh, I'm better now. Like I was like they just kept giving every time he went in. I don't feel right here. Take this, take this. <clears> the <throat> next thing there. you know, you're like naked in the closet with a gun. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was telling. Uh, sorry, I kept calling you Keegan. Keegan. Oh, I was telling Keegan. Uh, How dare you pronounce my weird name wrong? I know. I well, Keegan, <laughs> like a keg and. Yeah, don't 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 come, smurf me up, man. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I was telling him when I first met him. Uh, one of the most powerful experiences of my medical career was. Uh, uh, a, a medical retirement medical board uh like Kagan went through with a seal uh and he, he'd be if he's okay with me talking about this is we've we've talked about it on podcast together uh mccall vega who was yeah, he's fucking awesome he, he's an awesome dude and he he uh so he he has uh uh vital warrior vital warrior vital, vital warrior organization yeah and he's a good buddy of mine but he came in my office he was on 17 psychotropic medications. He had already had a stimulant-induced heart attack in his 40s. Uh, he was dark. He was moody. He was brooding. If there was ever anyone who's going to murder, suicide, me, and it's like, this was the guy. <laughs> yeah. And he came to my office every damn day, and I was scared of him every damn day. And he came to my office for probably six months, and then he got out. Uh and he, I mean, he was hating it. He was hating everything about his treatment. He was hating everything about how he was being treated at the military, the political process. Uh, he got out kind of against his will. And uh, he just decided, you know what? Uh, a lot like Kagan, he's like, I'm not taking this anymore. Uh, and he literally threw away everything he was prescribed. He got on a plane. He flew to Peru. He met with a shaman. He lived with a shaman nude in the amazon for 30 days doing kundalini yoga eight hours a day ayahuasca every third night and then he comes back and i saw him at uh remember we used to have at dick's last resort we had those those fundraisers every year for uh, one of the foundations god damn i love dick's last resort <laughs> and he <laughs> i and love he, that place and he comes across and he's sitting he's sitting this far across from me with with john and he comes up and he starts talking to me and uh you know, I, I'm a doctor of like 5,000 guys. So a lot of times I don't know who they are right away. And I you know I'm with names. And I'm who is it? Who is he? And who is he? And, and the, so I'm trying to get little cues. I talked to him for 45 minutes and I have no idea who he is. Yeah. And finally he said something and I went, his nickname used to be Hooch. And I was like, yep. Hooch. And he goes, 
personally, who the fuck did you think I was? And I said, I have no idea. You still don't look like Hooch to me. Completely I'm like, I, I don't know who you are. I cannot believe that's you. Everything about him looked different. His yeah. eyes were different. His voice was different. His, his facial energy, expression, his energy. Everything. He'd lost like 60 pounds. He was like completely unrecognizable. And so he tells me that story. And that was the only reason I ever considered psychedelics and plant medicines to be worth a shit. Like that's the only reason I ever even was willing to consider that a possibility. When then a few years later, I had that Next thing you know, you were with, with my Amazon. buddy and I was, and I took, I took the first seal down to, I you know, retired and yeah, you know, he out of the service. Don't come after me. He was already out of the service. We took him down to Mexico to he was the first guy to do Ibogaine, which led to that, you know, the vets program and all that. That's right. Uh, but that was purely because of McCallvig. And when I brought McCallvig in, because I told my buddy, I'm like, hey, I'll go down there with you, but I'm like, I'm nervous. Like you, I've read that this kills people. Like there are people who have died from Ibogaine and I don't know what to expect. And so there's this guy I know who's done ayahuasca, which is kind of similar. Let's bring him in. And my buddy didn't want anybody around, but I talked him into it. And then in the, in the car ride down uh, from the train station in San Diego to, to uh, Rosarita, where the facility was, um, you guys go to they, they start talking and i was like i was like hey mccall what's your real name again and he's like Hooch. my real name is mccall i changed it legally <laughs> and i said all right fucker like what was what your was name it? before uh you changed it and then he tells me and he said you know why i changed my name right and i said no uh and he said it's a contractor my swim buddy who, who died in afghanistan uh, uh michael coke and so it's mccall and my buddy looks up at him and he goes I repatriated Michael Call. So he had he had escorted oh, him back Jesus. to his family, hometown, through his funerals, all the services. And I was like, oh, that's a coincidence. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, just randomly that just random. Yeah. Wow. I, I so met, did did this I'm, disappoint anybody? Is this the most amazing story you've ever heard? Well, uh, no, I mean it, it's, it's incredible, it, man. You know, yeah, we, thanks, we thanks, were Hagen, talking about sure. like, you know, Victor Frankel and that. I mean, like, this is like an amazing, you know, triumph of humanity. Uh I feel so sad that one that he had to go through this, and two that the the people you know you go fight for this country and you enter into this kind of pool to do these things, and then you know something negative happens, and all of a sudden you're thrust into like this system that is so broken that there's no way out, and then somehow you found your way out of it. It's like, uh, I mean, it you know like um, you know it's another it's a, miracle. Yeah, it's a yeah, miracle. It's a triumph. But like, you know, the, the whole time I'm listening to it, I'm just thinking like, how many more of these vets are in this situation that don't get out? And then I'm like thinking, how do we go help these people? Right. And like, it starts giving me like, I don't know if you notice, like I start having anxiety thinking about like, and I, you know, and I'm not an anxious person in any way, but thinking like, uh, like if this is standard of care and it's breaking and killing and destroying these people. And yet these, you know, these guys have fought for our country and they come back and, you know, we don't take care of our broken soldiers. Like, fuck man, like that. It's, yeah. it's inspiring depressing inspiring depressing like the whole cycle Fuck, whole of this game. whole thing you know when i when i got out of the navy uh i had gone to the va did my out processing and then moved on and like six weeks later i get a huge box in the mail that i wasn't expecting from the va i open it up and it's just a shitload of pills oh my gosh i didn't ask for them i don't know what they were I don't know <laughs> what were they on them. this is what we give <laughs> What were they? You just got like your like your parting gift, like and, and here your pills. Yeah, it was just all kinds of shit. And I looked at the box. I just immediately threw it away because I heard already enough stories. But 
you know, the number of, of just buddies or acquaintances, teammates that I know who have committed suicide, 100% of them have Absolutely. been taking pharmaceuticals. 100% of them. So, so step one is we need to hold these yeah. pharma companies fucking accountable. They are the ones that are causing this problem because yeah. they're in charge of education. They're the ones pumping these meds into the system, not just the military system, but everywhere else. I look at, you know, my parents. If you were, and if you were paying attention, those motherfuckers just took over the entire country for two years. So I'm yeah. not sure how we're going to no. beat those uh, dudes. Dude, it's the same in the NFL. I mean, um, so when I moved, uh, I had this like huge glass jar. It's about this big. And when they would give me drugs or pills at the NFL, I would just throw them in the jar. And I've tried to actually move <laughs> the jar around every time we move because I don't know what to do with all these pills. Don't flush them down the toilet. No, no, don't flush yeah. them down the toilet. I, I don't want to like, so they're in this thing. And like uh, periodically, uh, I remember somebody. You just reach in and take one and see no. what happens. No, I just randomly just take it. But I've had people be like, hey, do you have any painkiller? And I'm like, probably. <laughs> Look in this magical jar. Take a handful and, of candy. Um, I, I like I've told you that uh, observationally and um, I, I remember I pitched this to Peter Atia and he shit on it, which just talks about the fact that he doesn't have the intellectual capacity to understand this, um, that observationally, the guys that took the most amount of painkillers seem to have the most amount of problems today in the uh, for former NFL players. Right. And so my whole thing was like, if pills are how you get through this, when you get out the other side, it's not a good solution right. so you have to find a way like prolotherapy and other things to manage psychedelics this. and uh, like the psychedelic thing i mean you know aaron Rodgers is uh, on joe rogan talking about you know well you know, shit like he was, he was he was he was missing sunlight and exercise and yeah, nutrition just basic. and sleep and i mean let jesus if we could get that under control well, well we, think about uh, it and he's also in michigan which yeah. is like you know well like, that yeah. you're in virginia when you're in the psych ward is that right no, I, I was I had moved back to Michigan, so that okay. all went yeah. down in Michigan. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, like the death part of Michigan in a trash bag, dressed as like fucking <laughs> Superman, with with like clumps of his hair missing, trying to go out and fight crime. You didn't hear that part? I'm like picturing you like nuded up, shaved up, with like a trash bag for a uh, like a cape, being like. Dun, dun, dun. I'm like, holy shit! And then I'm thinking to myself, like, has anybody ever done a study on the interaction of all these drugs? Oh, I because mean, it, because it, there's it's, never it's, it's impossible yeah. it's impossible yeah, but, because the interactions and, and are the dependent chemistry. upon the physiology of the person so and the dosage and the so timing like, it's, it's like, impossible but that, that's the crazy part but then how can some guy with wire worm sub say oh that's standard of care when it, it it's not it's just well it's just like the, the, it's just like the covid response it was consensus science mm. it's like yeah. oh a group of board a board mm. of our elders got together and decided this is what we're going to do and yeah, that's the way we're going to run right now sally the problem is more widespread than just the military you know it's oh yeah the whole healthcare industry is just yeah, the entire system what doc what um do you think licensure is has, has gotten to the point where it is now a limitation to good care. I mean, should we eliminate the requirement for licensure to practice medicine? Um, you, you can't eliminate it, but it what it needs, it, it, it needs to go back to its original inception. So what the medical licensure used to be was that you went through medical school and you learned an adequate amount of information. You mastered the material enough to be eligible for a medical license. So... The, as I was saying earlier, the pharmaceutical, you know, super quickly, this is wave top, we can do a podcast on it later, but the pharmaceutical industry provides about 90% of all the research dollars. The research dollars leads to the research at the premier institutions, the premier institutions 
are the ones that are dictating medical curricula, right? The curricula is essentially dictated by the medical, by the pharmaceutical industry in a sense, because that's what people know about because that's what they're researching. And so every single medical school in the entire country has to have the exact same number of hours of every type of education. Like there is like every single one of them. And so we all have the exact same amount of time behind the microscope. We have the exact same time studying pharmacology. We have the exact same time doing anatomy. All that stuff is dictated nationally. Then when you finish medical school, during medical school and so there's three steps along the way. You take these United States medical licensing exam, which is what it should be because it's a United States medical education. And then you take this United States medical licensing exam, and then you have to go out to each state and get your license in that state. And that state has its own requirements. And so I have four different lights as they are working on getting one back and getting a fourth one. And Every state's different. They all want different. They all want different CMEs. Yeah. They want different, you know, training this and that. And and it's a it's a way to have local control over what your physicians do. Any like you know, it's just like a, a law license or a permit to build or something like that. It's like we want local control over what you do. And so you go outside the local control, they're going to crush you. So what we need is if we had a United States board. <laughs> Right. If you had a United States license, well, then your state would have to somebody in your state would have to get up to the federal level to try to crack down on you for giving vitamin IVs as opposed to some local hospital talking to some Got it. local representative that could cause trouble for you. You know, um, so that's that's one way. But the other thing we need to do is revamp the educational process because doctors don't understand health. They're called healthcare providers, so they're disease care providers. So yeah. you know, if you don't have a disease, a doctor doesn't have anything for you. Disease reaction providers. Right. Well, so that was my problem in the SEAL teams when everybody came and told me their problems. Nobody had a disease. There wasn't a single disease. But none well, of them venereal were, disease. But, I mean, well, SEALs. None of, none, of, none, of, <laughs> none of them were performing how they wanted to perform. And I had to figure out, okay, well, how do I make people perform better? without giving them drugs and stuff like I had to really relearn and understand the stuff that you would think a doctor would know. You had to educate yourself yeah. the right way yeah. on holistic care. Keith, we want to hold you up. Our podcast is just about over, brother. You have any, anything else for us? I mean, it's I, I, still a fascinating story. Um, um, I, I want to offer, you know, you've got my number. If there's any, if there's anything I can ever do for you, was there uh, any determining factor? Like I, I still am kind of uh, blown away by like the terminal velocity to eject is like 200 miles an hour and you were at like 700. Was there any, like, what was the, was there any reasoning or was there any thought of like why you survived? Because I would imagine getting ejected at that, like you should have been just like ripped into a billion well, pieces. Well, you would have been ripped into oh, millions I of pieces. Maybe, maybe the smaller, was, more compact, like the so, seat's so protecting the that, more, the limbs are in his lungs. Okay, <laughs> I, I buy it. So if the fact that he was like a little dude in the seat, it just helped absorb the blood. I, I think. I don't yeah, know. I think. What, what do you think, Kagan? Kagan? Yeah, I mean, it was miracle after miracle, really. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's any one thing. It just all came together. Um, Freaking miracle is all I can think. Um, yeah, leave it at that. Yeah. For people out there that are struggling, um, military, civilian, whatever you do, uh, there is no doubt a mental health crisis in our country. And if you want to start to take control of that and start to improve, 
there's things that you can do that that you don't have to have a special license you don't have to have any special equipment um, probably the most baseline thing is is just drinking clean water eating real food you know not not eating stuff that's got like 37 ingredients that you can't pronounce in it yeah uh, getting eating what your grandparents out. called food yeah I mean, these yeah. Are all the things our grandma and grandpa probably told us like yeah a little regular exercise get some sunlight um be compassionate love other people and do things that maximize your sleep you know minimizing or reducing alcohol um minimize you i know, did have not a, pay him to say that by the way cup of, have a cup if you like a cup of coffee cool but if you drink coffee all day that's going to jack up your sleep um there's all these little things that you can do if you're having troubles that are going to get your sleep back on track that once you start sleeping and your body's not in this state of chronic inflammation from all the crap that's in our diets and our foods and lifestyle stressors and all these things we do to ourselves, um, your body can heal itself in so many ways. And it doesn't take freaking pills. It doesn't take um, really anything other than just having the will to start making some changes in your life can, can unlock. And get out of the way, get out of the way of the healing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And, uh, um, yeah, that man, super appreciate your time. When you when that book gets closer, let us know. We have a we have between us, we have a ton of influential friends. We'd love to get you on podcast and help help okay. you promote this. And if there's anything we can ever do to help you with your recovery or any programs you got going on, you got my number. I'm always I'm always down to help. Thanks, Doc. And uh thank you guys for your time and and helping to get the word out about this kind of stuff is is it's pretty incredible to see men's journal doing uh, this kind of work now. Uh, gives me hope. <laughs> this stuff's getting into. Well, the we don't know how long they're going to let us do it, <laughs> but we're trying. Uh, we're going to get as much in as we can. Yeah, we're we're going to keep going until they eject us to seven hundred yeah, miles yeah. an hour. Yeah, I do think psychedelics have entered the mainstream now officially. I yeah. think it's there. If, if if you're not on board, you're late to the party. But yeah. Psychedelics are, are the answer for a lot of people for, for mental health and having a new awakening like many of us have. Well, but also finding alternative forms of care. I mean, like the hyperbarics, yeah. um, you know, some of the uh, other That's modalities. Right. Like, I mean, you're, you're bringing your prolo, prolotherapy. I'm like, work. I'm like 1850 called. They want their yeah. medicine back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, prolotherapy, uh, you know. And, and Stellate like, ganglion box, transcranial magnets, uh, yeah. you know, just freaking nature. Well, I'm in nature. well like I'm, uh, I'm testing that sauna deal with, with yeah. the, uh, like the Sa magnet yeah. helmets. Yeah. Um, you know, Sa saunas, sauna. cold baths, like yeah. uh, um, there's so much out there, yeah. so much out there. Uh, you know, the, the peptides the, the, and biologics. The new X, which you were using out here with Vance, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, muscle reprogramming, uh, you know, there's so much out there to help. None of this is traditional care. None of it's going to be covered by the VA for 20 years. Um, well, but uh, so the problem is, is what we're it, doing now uh, is like the best we can do is just to keep yeah. keep pushing one guy by guy. Like, That's you right. know, if we can help Kagan, he helps another guy and he helps another guy. And, you know, maybe there is, you know, there in is, our lives we make a difference. One step at a time. There is some hope in the VA. Um, I know some guys down in Arizona that have been uh, actually been able to receive ketamine therapy. Uh, yeah. So the VA is starting to get on board with psychedelics. And, and I really, I mean, and again, it's just one tool. And if you just go do a bunch of psychedelics and don't change anything in your lifestyle, it, it, it might not do a lot for you. But uh, yeah, my, 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 yeah, my concern is that they won't have the expertise to use it, even though they'll have the ability to use it. But, 
yeah, yeah. You know, anything is better than what we have going. So, yep. baby steps, well, like any any progress I'll take. Uh, anybody else got any saved rounds, alibis, anything you want to throw oh, out? That's great, man. Well, yeah. dude, thank you so much. And, uh, dude, best of luck, man. Like, great. Just, amazing like, story, man. Virtual high five. Thanks for sharing, bro. Yeah. yeah. You made us yeah, all let's... feel like sissies, by the way. Yeah. Like, every, no, none, I would have no, been dead. None of us have any problems. Like, we're our lives are perfect. <laughs> Well, thank you. Appreciate, guys. appreciate you, brother. Likewise. All right. See you. Thanks, Kerry. That's it. If it was a movie, I don't know. I've been like, this is pretty far.